0: Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade.
1: Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We have a lot to discuss. At the bottom of the hour, Rick Prado uh, Prado will be with us. Uh, He's uh, got a brand new book out. It's called Black Ops, the Life of a CIA CIA Shadow Warrior. He's going to be in studio. That'll be great. Got to get his take on our latest challenge. Uh, especially now that it's overseas, it's back to the future. And we're talking about Ukraine and Russia. And it's uh, the outgunned Ukrainians are really paying a price today. Let's uh, Before I get into detail on that, uh, let's get to the big three.
0: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big
2: Three. Number three. I fully accept the fact that the American people uh, are more show me, not tell me. And what they want to see is they want to see that we really have reached a new way of managing COVID. They want to see that these the re- economic recovery is real and sustained. I think the political credit will follow from that.
1: Uh, that is Ron Klein. President Biden and his officials hit the road to sell their State of the Union message, and they think they're a great economic story. The problem is the American people have a different story.
3: Number two.
1: My message
4: to the people of Russia, if they're even able to hear it, the economic costs that we've been forced to impose on Russia are not aimed at you. They're aimed at compelling your government to
2: stop its actions, to stop its aggression.
1: Anthony Blinken, really inspiring, right? Pressuring Russia, massive sanctions hitting individuals and the Russian nation while protests continue inside their country and their currency is getting crushed. The fact is we can be doing even more. What are we waiting for?
5: Number one. I'd like to point out the statement of your president, uh, Biden, when replying to a question whether there was an alternative to these uh, sanctions from hell. He said that the only alternative is World War III, and everyone understands that it can only be nuclear war.
1: Uh, Yeah, that is Sergei Lavrov through a translator. First Ukrainian city falls. Yes, as pressure and shelling rages where Ukrainian forces are, most of them are outgunned and overwhelmed. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, as you just heard, speaks uh, and blames it on Nazism. Yes, Nazis in the Ukraine are the problem. And he says the U.S. wants to dominate Europe like Hitler and Napoleon. How delusional. That is really what he said. Joining us now, Senator Joe Lieberman, former U.S. senator from Connecticut, vice presidential candidate uh senator always great to hear from you what about that ridiculous statement that i don't know if you had a chance to see i watched an hour press conference on sky news today that's really the explanation lavrov's going with you know this guy he's smarter than that
6: yeah he's smarter he's cunning he he, he uh, lies uh, with real uh, great real real ease and uh th- this this whole crisis in Ukraine is uh, the figment of Vladimir Putin's vision of restoring the Russian empire. I mean, he, uh, they know that Ukraine does not threaten them, which is part of the problem they're having with their soldiers, the Russian soldiers in Ru- Ukraine. They, they don't have a cause that they're fighting for. And the Russians also know that NATO is a defensive alliance. It has never threatened them. It was created and still exists in large part to protect Western Europe from first the Soviet Union and and now uh, Russian expansionism. And the whole business of calling uh, the Ukrainians Nazis is just—it's it's like out of George Orwell, you know, war is peace, love is hate. I mean, uh, Putin will say anything— uh, and, and, and it's really offended the Ukrainian people who suffered under the Nazis. And to say the obvious, the president of Ukraine today, uh, Zelensky, is Jewish and a proud Jew and identified Jew. So it's, it's nonsense. And uh, it's why Putin has to be stopped. How? Well, we're we're at a, as you said in the lead, in Brian, we're at a different phase here. I mean, look, uh, uh, Putin, you could see this coming, but he... He did it. It's cruel. It's it's uh, it takes us back to the old Europe of centuries of warfare between nations, which the Europeans thought stopped after the Second World War and the Cold War. But here it is again in really brutish form and much to Putin's surprise. uh, The people of Europe, the United States, the world have just acted with revulsion and anger about what he's done, and their leaders are reflecting that by putting unprecedented sanctions on the Russian economy, which are really hurting them and making Putin into an international outlaw, um, which is what he is. But on the and the and the Ukrainians have been courageous, inspiring. Uh, they they make us all want to help them. But on the ground, uh, the reality is that the Russian military, of course, is much stronger than the Ukrainians. And we're beginning to see that now. And the question is, uh, now really, one, for Putin, is he, is he just bombarding the Ukrainian cities to, to get to a point where there can be a ceasefire um, on terms that are, are acceptable or advantageous for him? Or does he really mean to uh, demolish uh, uh, Ukraine the way he did uh, Chechnya, and uh, the challenge for us now—and uh, by us, I mean uh, the U.S. NATO—are we going to stand back? I know. And, and let uh, a, a kind of almost you might say genocide. It's a, it's the, it's the um, a murder of uh, uh, the Ukrainian people just because they're Ukrainians. Uh, he's targeting civilians, and my answer to that is: I hope not. I, I know they're not willing to do a no-fly zone. There's a lot more. They can do on the ground with more sophisticated uh, weapons look we could also uh, covertly send in special forces to aid the ukrainians and the and then our nato allies in europe have tremendous capabilities along those same lines i think morally we just can't stand back and watch this we
1: are senator we are and listen they they say either you go in it's world war three or we sit on the outside and we provide arms but a lot of the heavy arms are latent coming, and they're about to shut off. They're zeroing in on Odessa, and they're about to shut off. They could be shutting off the Black Sea, which means we can only get there through land.
6: Yeah, you you are absolutely right. I I, I know it's you don't you don't. When somebody says they're <clears throat> like Lavrov and Putin, that this could end up in a nuclear war. You don't want to just dismiss it without thinking about it. But honestly. Uh, I take that to be a bluff, and, uh, and they're trying to scare the Ukrainians and us. And uh, look, we've seen uh, uh, before Crimea was seized by the Russians and since that when you try to uh, coddle Putin and, and you, you try not to offend him, you don't uh, bring a Ukraine into NATO, uh, for instance, uh, he, he doesn't reward us for that behavior. He he sees a vulnerability and he strikes. And uh I, I think the only answer uh to this uh thug, I say again, is to use whatever power we can agree with our NATO allies to use militarily to help um uh the Ukrainian indirectly people. or directly? I I would say indirectly, but as directly as we can get agreement to do. I mean if I were if I, if it was up to me, I would be imposing a no-fly zone. I would be giving the Ukrainians uh, some of our sophisticated armed drones to, for instance, hit that long uh, uh, convoy of, of tanks and other military vehicles, sort of waiting to strike um, Kiev uh, as, as soon as they can. And 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 it's also possible. Uh, to send in special forces, which is less open uh, of ours, but uh, they can play a a significant role. We've done it in other countries before. Uh, The Ukrainian people really deserve that kind of help.
1: Absolutely. Senator, this is going to drive you crazy, but you know that we're making an open, it's an open secret, it's no secret at all, that we are dealing with Russia, uh, trying to work out a worse deal with Iran. How could we be sitting there dealing with Russia at the same time trying, the world, trying to rally the world against Russia?
6: Wow, boy, do I, I agree with you. It's, it's just so startling. It's foolhardy. I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I think uh, there's some sort of uh, uh, hypnotic uh, uh, a draw of, of this administration following on the Obama administration to somehow pay any price and not keep their eyes open and look at the broader view to get another nuclear agreement with Iran, which is an anti-American country that you simply cannot trust. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if I got just throw an op-ed on this, um, which which is this. Uh, in Vienna, where we're negotiating with the Iranians, Brian, um, we accepted a, a demeaning uh a, a deal at the beginning, which is the Iranians. Can you imagine this? This group of terrorists said they would not sit in the same room to negotiate with the United States of America. So our representative uh, is off in another hotel, I think. And who's negotiating uh, with the Iranians? Yeah, it's true, our allies, the English, the French, the Germans, but also the Russians and the Chinese who don't wish us well, to put it mildly. So, uh, and then they shuttle over to the American representative. So we've got this bizarre, almost unbelievable situation where we are literally at war, uh, certainly economically, certainly geopolitically with Russia now over Ukraine. And at the same time, um, we, we are apparently seriously considering a deal with Iran that the Russians and Chinese, among others, are recommending to us. And it's bound to be a bad deal for us and a good deal uh, for uh, the Iranians and a bad deal for our allies in the Middle East, which means uh, Israel and the Sunni Arab countries. I mean, it's unbelievable. I think particularly in the middle of the Ukraine crisis, Honestly, the Biden administration. This is one of those: uh, do no evil, make no mistakes. Uh, they ought to leave Vienna at least for a while, put those negotiations on hold, and deal with Ukraine. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be the Iranian deal could be another. If it happens, could be a, an embarrassment, different from Afghanistan, but uh, right. as as devastating to the credibility. Uh, and security of the United States of America. And
1: do you know what happened, Senator? You you teach classes on this. You could. The Abraham Accords came about because we isolated Iran and made it clear for the rest of the Middle East that Israel was not your problem. Israel will be a partner. And they began to form partnerships. The Abraham Accords was about seeing who your enemy was, and it is not the democracy. It is not the Jewish community. It is not the Jewish people. And they finally woke up to that in defiance of everything we've been told in the past. And now as we go back in, ignore that, try to rekindle this relationship with Iran, which was based on a a pack of lies with an agreement that couldn't pass Congress with people like Senator Schumer and Ben Cardin and Menendez voting against it. Now they're going to get a worse deal. Ignore Israel's pleas forcing Israel to be ostracized again and maybe act on its own, putting Arab against Arab and Arab against Jew. It's unbelievable how dumb this is, how short-sighted it seems. And then you watch Afghanistan make us look weak, allows Ukraine to become susceptible. Now, as they're being besieged, we let everybody know, we will not put troops on the ground. So please tell me where the wisdom is of Joe Biden's 50 years in office. Well, I look.
6: I don't, I don't believe there any is any wisdom to the course the administration is following uh, in negotiating with the Iranians, and we are really setting the uh, Israelis and and the Arabs uh, uh, off, standing uh, back from us because they don't trust us. They can't believe we're doing this. Your analysis of the Abraham Accords, Brian, is absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people in the Arab countries wanted to begin to have. Um, better relations economic relations with israel, but honestly uh what 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 broke through was their shared uh fear and opposition to Iran and the ability uh, and give credit where it 's due of the trump administration, particularly Jared Kushner uh in negotiating the uh abraham accords but uh the the i know i I keep in touch with the Israelis and the arabs and they are very anxious about what's happening in the negotiations. Uh, so uh, again, I say we should put the uh, we should put the brakes on. Um, the world is not a safe place, and uh, sure, we we would love to have diplomacy work and peace work, but when you're dealing with a country like Iran or Russia, ultimate under Putin, ultimately all they understand is strength. Mm-hmm we have the strength the military strength uh and the question yeah. is are we going to use it to support our security and the security of our allies and uh we've made some progress in uh and uh, and the the administration here the Biden administration done some good things in the Ukraine crisis but but i agree with another thing you said Brian which is all throughout this including in the months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I would not have taken anything off the table. I mean, let let, let Putin think that there really was a chance we Absolutely. would go in early, and, and, and that would be maybe, and I think if we, again, I, I thought in the State of the Union, in which the president was pretty good about Ukraine, uh, no need to assure Putin again- Again. As mm-hmm. to murder uh, Ukrainian civilians in enormous numbers. No, no, we're not going to go in. Right. I I don't, I don't think you deal with a bully. You know, we, I we've you. all probably had experience with bullies. You don't uh, sort of sweet-talk them out of being bullies. Sometimes you got to punch them in the no, nose. From You learn
1: that in fifth grade, 11th grade. You learn that in the real world, what neighborhoods to go down, and you what you better be prepared to do if you go down that road. And we don't seem to have – once we put on a suit and became adults, we thought the world got civilized. It hasn't. Pick up Joe Lieberman's book, The Centrist Solution, How We Made Government Work, and How uh, to Make It Work Again. Senator, always educational to talk to you. Thank you.
6: Brian, I I appreciate it. And uh, you you and I agree on a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I must be smart then. Uh, You are are smart. Thank you. Good luck.
0: Take care.
1: Go get him, Senator. Um, not, Not go get him. Go get them. That's big difference. Back in a moment.
0: Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
2: His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
0: A talk show that's real. This is the Brian
3: Kilmeade Show. U.S. troops uh, won't, uh, won't fight Russia uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and if you establish a no-fly zone, uh, certainly uh, you, uh, in order to enforce that no-fly zone, uh, you'll have to engage uh, Russian aircraft. And again, that would put us uh, uh, at war with Russia.
1: Right. Uh, we're at war with Russia. We just haven't directly acknowledged it. They are carving up uh, the Ukraine, despite how far hard they fight, because they have all the armaments. And now they have Belarus, who's going to take aim at Moldova. And we have they have 141 countries in their Backyard. They have arms now flowing there. We hope. They at least pledge to go there. They don't have an Air Force, but we could with much of an Air Force. And we promised the MiGs for some reason they uh they have been held up in Poland, even though the pilot showed up to fly them out. Now you got a 14 or 40 mile convoy, 14 miles from the city of Kiev. You have one major city has fallen. Odessa is being targeted. Kharkiv is also being surrounded. Even though it's 98 percent Russian speaking, they have no interest in Russia. They just want to fight Russia and fight them out of their country. But they just might be too overwhelmed. Do we come back putting in perspective about conflict and more? Rick Prado, a 24-year veteran of the CIA and author of the new book "Black Ops," don't move. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll give you all the latest. Don't move.
0: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: For a long time, uh, I uh, thought that uh, a military operation was not uh, feasible. It was not plausible. You know, I had uh, my own uh, cost-benefit analysis. And uh, even if you put aside all other considerations... Uh, I thought that um, uh to go into Ukraine uh, is not in Russia's interests but uh, apparently you know my cost benefit analysis uh did not coincide with uh, that in the Kremlin.
1: Uh, d- uh, Dr Andrei Kortinov He's a Russian foreign policy advisor speaking to Sky News, talking about the operation where Russia goes into the Ukraine. We're on day eight, and uh, they're beginning to encircle two major cities. They took their first one yesterday, and people are wondering where this is going. Uh, Not many people in this world are for this. One hundred and forty one countries at the United Nations yesterday voted against this. Uh, But still, Vladimir Putin continues to uh, uh, pound civilian targets and civilians and just try to wreck and raise a city. This does not surprise my next guest, Rick Prado. He spent 24 years in the CIA. He's author of a brand new book. He's featured on 60 Minutes, uh, excuse me, on CBS this morning, but uh, called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Rick, welcome. Great to meet you. Thank you. It's a pleasure and to meet you. And thanks for everything
7: you did to this con- for this country. Thank you, Brian. Uh, there's a lot of Rick Prados in the agency. Trust me.
1: Right. Um, <laughs> now, with your unique background, too, if right. you just want to lean a little bit closer to the microphone, you, you come. Uh, I'm going to just have you comment on this first. We're in a very unique situation in 2022. It's not 1935. That's correct. 1938. We can't believe that a country would invade another country for no reason. They actually said, I was watching Lavrov this morning, the foreign secretary, foreign minister. He said it's because the Nazi, uh, the Nazism in the Ukraine that has to be stopped by a Jewish, by, president. By a Jewish president. Does anyone <laughs> believe that in Russia? Um, from what you know, I mean, in the, we know it's not true. Oh, uh, we know and it's not true and the, and the
7: world knows it's not true, Brian. But the, pro- the problem is, you know, the, the, that is the Russian ethos. That is their philosophy. Communism is a monster that only understands one thing. If there's weakness, I'm going to exploit it. And I, I am actually surprised that we're surprised at times that they, he did this. When he took over, when Putin took over, one of the first things he said was, I, will, I want to resuscitate the greatness of the fatherland of, of, of the Soviet Union. That's a clue, and he said that from the very beginning.
1: And he said in Munich in two thousand eight. That's right. Uh, at a security conference. That's right.
7: So he's 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 mentioned this several times in his his life that you know this is his intent. Um, I think because they are a predator culture in this in this case, or at least the the communists is, uh, are. They they see an opportunity. They honestly believe that they thought that they could get away with it, and I'm very glad to see. That it's not just the United States trying to take a stance, but I, th- I see a little bit more global responsibility um, backing backing the the, uh, the the Ukrainian. So.
1: And it was something about Zelensky's remarks that mobilized Europe. Yes. He said, "I might not. This might be the last time you see me." Yeah. And he's not kidding. They put t- at least two kill squads yeah, into yeah. Uh, right. into the nat- to, into Kiev to go mm-hmm. get them.
7: And they got annihilated
1: too. Yeah. Right, and mm-hmm. they did. Because the report is that we gave the intelligence over. Yes. You think that's most likely? That's Well,
7: that is going to be one of our biggest roles there. I mean, uh, if, from past incarnations, I know that in cases like this, if we see it coming even a year before, we spend a lot of time bustering up their military capabilities and training. And same thing with intel collections training and, 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 and getting to work with our uh, in, intelligence mechanisms so we can pass them things that we get through sensitive sources. Uh, so I, I am definitely uh, sure that we are helping them with exactly that kind of uh, operations.
1: So yeah, I played Secretary of Defense Austin saying we're not gonna we're not gonna be on the ground there. You heard Joe Lieberman at the top of the hour. He, he was a former uh, senator from Connecticut who did a lot of work with John McCain and Lindsey Graham, traveling the country to the worst possible war zones you can imagine. Not as bad as you, uh, but he did it as a del as a as a senator. And he said, I would put somebody in on the ground there. We could put special forces in on the ground to start and aid, uh, even if it's using some type of weaponry that could take out uh, airplanes and stop right. the air attack.
7: Yeah, you know, and that is, a, that is a political decision uh, above my, my pay grade kind of thing. Obviously, there's always the risk of having an American captured out there or whatever.
1: Which happened to you when you were on a mission with the Contras yes. in Nicaragua.
7: Very close to it yeah i almost got picked up but someone did and blew the whole mission absolutely you know so it it's uh it is it is incumbent of us to provide the ukrainians with every single thing that we can and if that means putting some of our special operations forces in in a uh, not in the pointy end of the combat or you know doing house to house but helping them with some of the more sophisticated like lasing targets so Jets could actually be able to hit something, you know that kind of stuff.
1: My hope was Rick, that someone inside Russia is going to take him out. Uh, they're going to say the the oligarchs, the ones with the money and the power, they're getting their yachts, their planes, their money is being frozen. This the, their toys are being taken away. They're going to say this guy's more uh, he's doing more harm than good. And this foreign policy advisor, I thought would maybe reflecting what other people feel, Doctor Andre Kortinov, And here's what else he told Sky News. Cut ten.
3: I am trying to. Keep going, I'm trying to uh, continue doing what I'm doing, but of course I'm depressed. you know all of us are depressed, and uh, I think that uh, it's, it's very embarrassing for all of us, not only because we turned out to be wrong, but uh, also because of course, you know Russia and all Russians
7: will be in a difficult position.
1: So it's what he said, and the fact he's saying it. What does it say to you there's some cracks in the Putin foundation?
7: You know, I think that that is the biggest uh, surprise here. Uh you know, we're like we, you know, we had Stalin and Khrushchev and and all these animals before. But this is the first time that the Russia also has this powerful underworld of these oligarchs who are people that are multi billionaires and they a lot of them come from the former regime, so they know the game. Uh, so he's got to be, yes, the yes yeah. He, they they have to be careful. Be he's, I mean, Putin's got to be careful because these people will have the the clout and the financial support to to, to yank him out. Uh,
1: a little bit about your background. No one has to explain communism to you. Your family was in Cuba during the transformation when Fidel Castro came in and forced uh, all those. Uh, I guess Somoza was there. Castro comes in. What did? How did it affect your family?
7: Well, you know, um, um, I lived in a small town uh, in the bottom of the Escambar Mountains where Che Guevara was, was at. So my town got hit two or three times. But I was, first firefight I ever saw, I was seven years old, right in front of my window, people getting, getting shot. So, but, and that wasn't traumatic, that was just curious. But when you see a, a, a country within six months make a complete U turn, All the businesses being confiscated, kids having to wear military uniforms to go to school, and the abuses that immediately started, the persecution, uh, you don't forget that as a kid. And my my father, who had a seventh grade education and never read Marx or Lenin, but he had a heart of a lion, he said, I'm I'm an only child, by the way, says, I am not going to have my son grow up in a communist country. So he says, we're leaving. Well, they wouldn't let him go. We had the, the ability to come to the United States, but they were not getting the exit permit. So my dad somehow managed it. There's a pro- program called the Peter Pan program that was bringing out kids, and that's what I was in. It. So it, I turned 11 at the orphanage. Um, and and going from seeing that disaster to coming to this country where everything is proper and people took us in with, with open arms, You know that, that was the seed that was planted that not only am I going to fight communism and all the isms, but i owe this country a debt of honor
1: and they you felt like you were the country you're sitting in an orphanage not the best situation there's some clashes there there's some challenges right you didn't know if you were going to see your family again number 2 number 3 you were, you were tagged to maybe go to the soviet union right
7: yeah uh, I, I, my uncle was by uh, my my my, uh, my my uncle on my mom's side was uh, a school teacher a, a professor at the school that i was at and he was a socialist. He was actually a, you know, a left-leaning kind of individual. Uh, and he – but you know, blood is thicker than water. And he called my dad and says, your son's name is on a list to be proposed to be sent to, uh, to Russia to study. Because you were a smart
1: kid. I guess. I, you know. And they said, let's go train him with the Soviet Union. That's right. And that's when your dad said, that's it. That was it. Wow. Uh, and you think about how different your life is. But once you get here, it wasn't easy, right?
7: Well, you know, it wasn't. Your dad never
1: took one dollar from welfare. My dad wor- worked two jobs for as long as I, as
7: I can remember. My mom worked in a sweatshop for well over a decade. Uh, we were way be- below the poverty line when we moved into this country. But we had hope. We had security. And we knew that if my dad made 15 cents, nobody was going to take it
1: away from him. And you were delivering papers? I was delivering papers. Yeah. Right. So you do whatever you can. When you had, when you came from where you came and you come here, you appreciate it. No one has to tell you to appreciate it. Are you amazed that people don't seem to appreciate this country right now?
7: I am not only amazed, but it's hurtful for me because, and, and, and you know, the, Brian, I think the problem is that we don't know how good we have it. Of course. You know, even Americans who have traveled overseas, I had a conversation with somebody who says, well, I've been to Mexico. I said, no, you've been to Cancun on a cruise. That's not the same. If you live in a, in a third world country or even some of the other first world countries and you come to this country, you see the difference in the efficiencies and everything else. But primarily is the freedom. You know, the, the, the antagonist to communism
1: is freedom. And that's what the people of Ukraine want. They know they don't have the perfect system, but they want the freedom to screw it up or make it better. Make it theirs. Yeah. And I think that in some small way, it's making us evaluate this self, self-flagellation that we've been going through. Now, wait a second. They're fighting for what we have and are taking for granted. Exactly. You know, and you know, the, the other thing is the
7: Soviets say, well, you know, the, the Ukrainians are a threat because they're getting closer to the West. The Ukrainians could say the same thing. The Russians are on our, on our, on our east side and they want our territory. There's no question about that. Of course,
1: they fear the democracy.
7: They exactly. don't fear the country. Exactly. They right. don't want that, that, that creeping into their culture. So people are going like, wait a minute, it's working over there. Mm-hmm. Why am I in a poverty line over here?
1: And then you went and spent the next two two decades of your professional life fighting for the country in ways that your first time you're saying and talking about in your book. First off, before we go to break and get some details, um, why did you – how did the CIA find you or how did you find the CIA? Um,
7: I when when I was uh, uh, in first first year of college, I had uh, an event that kind of uh, woke me up, and um, understanding that I had to have a purpose to my energy and to my aggressiveness and and to uh, my intellect, for, for lack of a better word. So I joined uh, Air Force Pararescue, which is one of our elite special operations forces in in the United States, uh, because I wanted to go to Vietnam. I, I, I that's when I really started feeling that urge of, of I need to pay back to this country what it did for my mom and my dad because as hard as it was on me, it was nothing compared to what it you did went, to You guys face. were doing good in Cuba, right? You, you, were, you know, when, when Castro took over in 59, my dad had a 57 Pontiac, and we had a TV and a telephone in our house.
1: That's middle-class America. Yep. And then he took it all away, Everything and he took funny. it away from everybody, funny. and then at least you escaped with your life. When we come back, um, what Rick did and what he served and why he left. Uh, it's all in his uh, brand-new book, Black Ops, The Life of the CIA Shadow Warrior. Uh, he has uh, everything in perspective. Hopefully you do, too.
0: Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
1: Over the last couple of years, Putin
0: has
2: been more and more isolated. He's not been in the Kremlin for the most part. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He doesn't look very powerful. And this is going to jeopardize his ability to stay in power.
4: That word rational actor is a very elastic, right? He's out at his compound, doesn't come into town very much. And under COVID, he's been more isolated. He's increasingly unhinged in the way that he talks about the regime. Well, I met with
3: him many times. Uh, and uh, this is a different Putin. He seems uh, erratic. There is uh, an ever-deepening uh, delusional rendering of history. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before.
1: So you heard uh, former ambassador Russia speaks Russian, uh, McFall. You heard Condoleezza Rice last and uh, uh, General McMaster in between. My guest is Rick Prado, a 24-year veteran of the CIA, whose new book is doing great. It's called Black Ops, uh, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Uh, Rick, I just wanted, there's a lot of people who feel he's not the same guy. I'm wondering what Rick Prado feels.
7: Well, you know, I think that he is uh, the, the same guy from day one since he called it that he was going to rebuild the Soviet Union. But uh, I, I think that what he's giving extra pressures now is the fact that he's failing at what he was trying to do. You know, he thought that this was going to be a cakewalk. Uh, he figured in three in three days he would have taken over the Ukraine. Um, now he's under pressure to deliver something that he may not be able to deliver.
1: Um, oh, you um, um is it too loud? The no, headsets? it was breaking in and out. Oh, okay. Um, it's clear now. Got gotcha. you. So looking now at the Vladimir Putin you have, I think he's finding out his military, as much as they are ruthless, I think he's finding out his military is not nearly as good as he thought.
7: No, they're, they're, they're first of all, and they're not. Uh, second, the Ukrainian resistance has been something for the textbooks. But you know, at the same time, there's a saying that amateurs practice tactics – and experts practice logistics. When I saw that convoy stranded out there still for there. as long and it's still, still there, those guys are out of fuel. They're out of food. Supposedly they came in with like three or four days' worth of food, and he's got no way of resupplying them yet because he's, he's losing his resources. Let's talk about the CIA.
1: What, what kind of shape is the agency in when you left?
7: Well, you know, like everything else, the, the the agency unfortunately has, like the FBI, has become a little too politicized. Even though that's against our ethos. First thing they teach us is we don't do politics, we don't do policy. We we do intel collection and covert action. That's what the agency is supposed to do. But uh, so we we have we ebb and flow with with whoever is is, is our leadership, um, and because they put in in those positions the individuals that match mm-hmm. what what they want to do. What what I. Always find hope in the agency is the quality of people that we have, and, and and that was the impetus for me writing the book. I got so tired of reading in the paper, you know about you know the movies, Jason Bourne, American Made, all these stupid allegations of us selling drugs in in, in California and, and all this kind of. And you know, Brian, we have a hundred and thirty-seven stars on our wall. I've seen it. And, and it's Do a smaller, know. you know, this is not like Big Army. I mean, we're talking a very relatively small operational component, and we have 137 stars. And not only that, a third of those are post-9-11, and many of those I knew personally. So for me, it's an affront that those individuals that we sent into harm's way and gave their life for this country are compared to, you know, Jason Bourne and, and maniacal assassins and, and this kind of stuff.
1: Right. Uh, what about, uh, the, you mean when you say political and you see a guy like Brennan?
7: Yeah, John, John Brennan
1: was uh, very detrimental to the agency
7: uh, because he became more political than any other DCI we've ever had. And you can't afford that? We, we should not. You know, one of the things, when you see the State of the Union, the military sits in the middle. They don't applaud. They don't nod. They don't shake their heads. They're just there. That should be our posture. We need to be remain apolitical. We cannot be showing a, a preference to one right, left, or whatever.
1: Do you think we're depending you're depending too much on drones?
7: Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the uh, the the, the, uh, the for me is such a hypocritical stance. You know, you will not allow us to go in there and take out Hitler in 1939 or Osama bin Laden in 1995, but you will send a drone into a in a, in a place. To kill two terrorists, and you'll have 15 collateral damages, and you have no collection. You don't go to be able to exploit the computers or the phones or anything. And and when we do that constantly, it's like, oh, wow, we got a boo-a-boo, whatever. But if you propose the other, you're insane.
1: Yeah, uh, and Rick is not. His book is fantastic called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Rick, thanks so much. And I'll talk to you on TV. Thank you very much. All I look forward to it. Go pick up his book. Listen to Brian Kilmeade Show.
0: From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade.
1: Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York City, where the subways have never been more dangerous and the streets uh, crowded like I haven't seen since 2019, which I think is good news. Mark Thiessen at the bottom of the hour, you know, former speechwriter for Bush, as well as Fox News contributor and Washington Post columnist. And with me in a matter of moments, Ambassador uh, Bill Taylor knows this region and knows both countries as well as anyone. So let's get to the big three.
0: Now, with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's
2: Big Three. Number three. I fully accept the fact that the American people uh, are more show me, not tell me. And what they want to see is they want to see that we really have reached a new way of managing COVID. They want to see that these, the re- economic recovery is real and sustained. I think the political credit will follow from that.
1: We'll see, Mr. Chief of Staff. President Biden and his officials hit the road to sell their State of the Union address. We'll see what happens.
0: Number two.
1: My message to the people of Russia, if they're even able to hear
4: it, the economic costs that we've been forced to impose on Russia are not aimed at you. They're aimed at compelling your government to stop its actions, to stop its aggression.
1: Pressuring Russia, massive sanctions hitting individuals and the Russian nation. Uh, feeling it while protests continue inside their country and they're currently getting crushed the fact is we can be doing more with sanctions and arms time is not on ukraine's side number one
5: I'd like to point out the statement of your president, uh, Biden, when replying to a question whether there was an alternative to these uh, sanctions from hell. He said that the only alternative is World War Three and everyone understands the sense that it can only be nuclear war.
1: Really? Uh, that is the translator for Sergey Lavrov about six hours ago. The first Ukrainian city has fallen as pressure of shelling rages, uh, the shelling rages on the two other major cities. And it looks like some ships, warships are heading towards Odessa, the port city, uh, right off the Black Sea in Ukraine. The foreign minister says it's all about stopping Nazism in Ukraine. Totally farcical by a guy that feels as though he could pull the wool over our eyes, not on my next guest. Ambassador Taylor, welcome back to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
8: Brian, it's great to be here. Thanks for having
1: me. You are the sixth ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, from 06 to 09 under Bush and Obama. And right now, you must be horrified about what you're seeing.
9: It is horrifying.
8: It is indeed horrifying that in this day, in 2022, there can be this kind of horrific attacks on a totally Brian, unprovoked attack. There's no justification for this attack by Russia on Ukraine. Um, President Putin tried to get the Ukrainians to fall into to take the bait um and to generate some kind of reason some kind of provocation that President Putin could use to justify an attack on this on this neighbor on this friendly neighbor. Ukrainians pose no threat to Russia, and he was looking for some reason that he could say to justify it. And he falls back on at you just said, the allegation, crazy allegation, ludicrous, absurd allegation of Nazis uh, in, in Kiev. Uh, President Blinsky, as we know, is of Jewish origin. This is just absurd, Brian, and you've identified that.
1: Kyrgyzstan has fallen. It's a key strategic point. There's video of the Russians walking up and down the streets. They're allowed to still throw uh, key to fly the Ukrainian flag, uh, and in turn, they said if you they gave a series of rules, you walk down the street by yourself uh, and do do some things. They're allowed to do that. I'm wondering if that tells you someone does that show you that maybe. The Russians don't want to take over the country if they let the Ukrainian flag still fly?
8: Brian, it's a good question. It's a good question. What do they want? What do the Russians want? Mr. Putin has been pretty clear about what he wants. Uh, he wants domination. He wants to dominate Ukraine. He doesn't think Ukraine's really uh, a sovereign Nation. He doesn't think it's a real country. He told famously told President Bush, um, and so he, President Putin, wants to dominate Ukraine in a way that takes away its sovereignty. That doesn't allow Ukrainians to decide who their leaders are, or or with whom they trade, or where they go for their security. He wants to take that all away. So, and he knows. And this gets to your question about Kherson. I've spent some time in Kherson. Um, um, he knows probably that he can't occupy the country with the kind of forces that are available to him. He would need millions, at least a million soldiers, Brian, for him to occupy Ukraine in, in some way that would control it. He knows he can't control it. I, I assume he knows he can't control it. And so he's looking probably for some other way to dominate it. President Zelensky is not having it. President Zelensky is staying so far in the capital. He's rallying the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian nation, uh, against this occupation, against this invasion, uh, against this denial of their sovereignty, of their independence, of their freedom. And President Zelensky has emerged as not just a national leader, but an international leader. And I and so the question
1: for Yeah, go ahead, Ambassador.
8: I was just gonna say the President the question pres the question for President Putin is how to deal with that national that international leader.
1: Ambassador, do you believe that he thought legitimately thought he was going to be walking into a country that did, wanted him there? And do you think that the plan was to take it by force because I guess in the Donbas province, he didn't have much resistance. He had no resistance in Crimea, that he'd walk into those cities and just take over. Did he not fully understand that that Zelensky was elected overwhelmingly, that the people kind of liked him and they don't want to be Russian? Do you think to a degree he's surprised they don't want to be Russian?
8: Brian, I think you're exactly right. You are exactly right. President Putin so underestimated the Ukrainian people, he probably, President Putin probably thinks that that uh, Ukraine is like it was in Soviet times, um, or, or at least like it was in pre-2014 times. The Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian nation is different today. It is actively, imminently, totally opposed to and indeed has hatred for, both Putin and the Russians, for what they have done. So, and, and I don't think President Putin understands that. You're right. He didn't lose a soldier um, in Crimea. He's lost a small number of soldiers in Donbass. And even those, by the way, Brian, have been hushed up, have been suppressed, and the families have been told, don't say anything about your losses. Uh, he's, President Putin's worried about those kinds of backlashes that he will get When Russian soldiers die, he does. President Putin has miscalculated, has misunderstood Ukraine and I think way underestimated President Zelensky.
1: I want you to hear what Admiral James Javid as you know, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO amongst his many titles. This is what he says uh, he's seeing now. Cut 19. I think we are headed toward a kind of bifurcated Ukraine. uh, Cold War 2.0 proxy war in Ukraine
10: going on for Uh, years. And it's pretty hard to see uh, a path out of the thicket that Vladimir Putin has put us in.
1: Well, I mean, we have talks today. Uh, Obviously, they're still trying to target Zelensky and trying to kill him as if that's going to solve any of those problems. If you are, I know, Ambassador, you're a, a diplomat, but what could we do short of putting troops in that we're not doing The one thing I believe we could try to execute that MiG deal that was done, that we sent Ukrainians to pick up their planes, and now the deal got undone. If you give the Ukrainians an Air Force, that actually might give them a chance, correct? And could you, somebody like you or somebody in a similar position, execute that type of deal?
8: So, Brian, you're exactly right. What we need to do— um, is to support the Ukrainians militarily in the first instance right away. And so you, the idea of these uh, fighter jets, uh, these are old Soviet-era fighter jets, but the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly these, and that could be what they need immediately. No, you're exactly right. That's what—it's the immediate effort that it's going to take to continue to resist the Russian force. I mean, the Russians have incredible force compared to the Ukrainians. They they get 10 times. Um, and so the odds of this David and Goliath are way against the Ukrainians, away against the Ukrainians. And so what we need to do exactly right, Brian, is we need to give them either Air Force. Um, I've been suggesting you – know, I've I heard from my Ukrainian friends, um, and one of the things they've asked for um, is support for the Ukrainian Air Force, such as it is, and it's still in the air. But they are getting jammed by the Russian electronic forces. The the Russians are jamming the communications among the Ukrainian Air Force,
1: and we can counter that. Of course. We can counter that. So that that would be great. Get them more and and let them fly. And I'm just wondering, if you have an Air Force, how could that 40-mile convoy still not be blown up that's sitting 14 miles outside Kyiv?
8: You're absolutely right. Every time we see photos of that convoy, um, the the former Air Force pilots get very excited. They say that is a target. That's exactly the target we're to do. Now, the Ukrainians know that, of course. The Russians probably know that. The Russians undoubtedly are trying to protect that convoy from air attacks. The Ukrainians are clearly trying to attack that convoy, uh, and they have to somehow penetrate that Air defense—the um, uh, defense of uh, that the Russians are putting up against the Ukrainian air force to try to protect that convoy. The convoy is also vulnerable to these these attacks from uh, Molotov cocktails. Uh, so so that is and the other one is of course the drones. Um, these TB2 drones have been very effective, and so that's what that's what needs to go after that convoy. The convoy is is apparently right. roadbound. And they're not able to get off the road. So that's those are targets.
1: I'm talking with Ambassador uh, Bill Taylor, who was the ambassador from the United States to the Ukraine from 06 to 09 under two presidencies. Ambassador, you know the roads. I can only see the Google Maps and see people's depiction of what's there. Kiev has blown up two of their bridges to stop the influx, to stop the ability for the Russians to come in. But it also makes it much harder for supplies to get in. Can you give me an understanding? I understand there's a lot of underground tunnels through the subway system. You could fit uh, tens of thousands of people in there. You've probably been there. So, how do those people get supplied? From what you know, if two bridges are blown up,
8: so you're right, Brian. Um, uh, there are m- multiple roads, large and small. There are there are the main roads um, that the Russians need to use uh, to move their their track vehicles, their tanks, their artillery, uh, the main roads um, are being blocked and the bridges uh, blocking those main roads, going across main roads are being damaged and, and destroyed so that the Russians can't come across there. There are a lot of other smaller roads and this is where the Ukrainian people are just genius. Um, they can move in ways that, are, that the Russians don't know. The thing about the Russians is they are invaders. They are foreigners. They don't know that terrain. The Ukrainians do. You know the Ukrainian traffic was 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 notorious. And when you were in a taxi with Ukrainian driver, they were genius about how they can get around. Um, In in little roads, big roads, they know the territory. I mean that's the advantage of the Ukrainians. They are home. They are defending their land. They know how to get the troops in. I heard this morning that there's fresh. Vegetables in the markets in keep they're getting through they're getting through. I'm hoping that that in addition to fresh vegetables there's this ammunition Brian that you and I were just talking about that needs to get through there there are ways to move equipment mm-hmm. ammunition fresh vegetables other supplies into that the ukrainians know and they will do it
1: Ambassador it doesn't do anyone any good to get you political so i'm going to try i'm trying to keep my question just about this. But I'm just wondering why we seem to be incremental in our sanctions. They don't have much time. Every day we get up and some other city is under siege, and the noose is getting tighter in Kharkiv and Kiev itself. And Odessa is being targeted by these warships that are evidently sailing that direction. So why don't we make the move that's under consideration to stop buying Russian oil, to start sanctioning banks that deal with energy stocks? We don't—I mean, waiting— the gradual approach is doesn't work in this situation. Don't you agree?
8: Brian, I agree that we should go right to the top of the escalation ladder on sanctions, as, as you just described, and indeed, as the administration has described, to go to the top. You're right about the energy. We should not be allowing um, the Russian coffers, the Russian uh, reserves of foreign currency to be increased, and they they are increased. The the reserves are increased when they sell oil and gas. Uh, so so this is uh, th- this this is a, a clear move. But even more important, the, the sanctions will have an effect and are having effect um, on the Russian economy, and it will have an immediate effect. But the way that we ne- the real urgency is what we talked about earlier, Brian. What the real urgency is to get ammunition, yep. to get more drones, to get those aircraft that you mentioned, uh, to to the, the jam the, the Russian Air Force and, and the Russian jamming. Those are the, those are the immediate things we need to do to help the Ukrainian people defend themselves.
1: Ambassador Bill Taylor, it's uh, not a great time for you, the Ukraine, but we need the expertise that you have from actually living there. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it.
8: Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here.
1: You got it. Uh, meanwhile, we come back. Your turn. one You can write me at BrianKilmead.com. I get your comments, and I'll try to read them out loud. Then we're going to talk to Mark Teeson, get a perspective on what's happening here, get his of state of the union address, and what this administration's done. They're actually trying to take all of Trump's issues from made in America to strengthening America and to bringing back American business. I'm not kidding.
0: Newsmakers and newsbreakers. here it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's
2: talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I think people are very concerned about inflation and very concerned about what inflation means to everyday families. We've put together proposals to meet the moment, not out of some... Uh, effort to kind of do something bigger than we should, but because we inherited very big problems. I fully accept the fact that the American people uh, are more show me, not tell me. And what they want to see is they want to see that we really have reached a new way of managing COVID. They want to see that these, the re- economic recovery is real and sustained. I think the political credit will follow from that.
1: Ron Klain trying to tell everybody the economy is so much better than you think, even though you don't feel that way, even though inflation is at 7%, the average wage increase is 5%, uh, knowing that then you have your taxes taken out, but inflation doesn't take out taxes, it just takes away your money. And then you talk about people not willing to go back to work and idiot governors like the one we have in New York coming out and saying, I don't think we'll ever go back to a five-day work week. Really? Is that going to help the economy? Is that the American work ethic that made us a cut above, not working five days a week? So – Ron Klain, he's banking on that. This is this guy with him, between him and Susan Rice, basically running the country. So what he's banking on, if I tell the American people enough that their life is great, they'll believe it. They're going to bank on that, but they see the numbers. The numbers say to fund the police is a disaster. So now they're actually saying they never said it, and it's now fund the police. They're saying made in America was a great line that Trump had, so we will take it. Now all of a sudden they'll do it. And they say the tax cut that everyone got was for the rich. Four Pinocchios from the Washington Post on that. And people were happier then. And his black supporters dropped from 81% to 66%. His approval rating, according to Washington Post, WABC, 37%. So they have a great idea. Let's adopt the rhetoric of Donald Trump and still do our policies that just don't work.
0: That makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. For decades, Russia and America have maintained stability despite fearsome nuclear capability. Can you reassure the world that Russia would not fire a nuclear weapon uh, in anger, would not fire a first strike?
5: We've got a military doctrine which describes the parameters and conditions for application or deployment of nuclear weapons. We do not have, uh, uh, we, we do not have any escalation in order to de- de-escalate, as uh, Western powers try to, uh, to present it. I'd like to point out the statement of your president, uh, Biden, when replying to a question whether there was an alternative to these uh, sanctions from hell. He said that the only alternative is World War Three. And everyone understands that it can only be nuclear war. But I would like to point out that these are statements of the Western politicians. They are repeating uh, nuclear war. This is not in the heads of the Russians.
1: That is the translator for Sergei Lavrov, who had about six hours ago had a press conference where he took uh, questions from all around the world. And his stories are absolutely farcical that he had to go into the Ukraine because of the Nazi atrocities that were taking place under the Jewish president Zelensky. Total, just uh, an insult to everybody's intellect. Mark Thiessen with us, former speechwriter for Bush, uh, Washington Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Mark, I don't know if you had a chance to see Lavrov, but um, he, he talked about basically they had no choice but going into Ukraine. And I ask you, for a guy with that type of intelligence and experience, who is he talking to?
11: First of all, you remember during the Iraq war, Baghdad Bob, the yeah. the uh, the, uh, the lying uh, Iraqi uh, communications minister who used to say there are no Americans in Baghdad and all those it, he's, he's become Kharkiv Ken. <laughs> this guy is just a, a bald faced liar. He says there are no Russian troops in Kharkiv, that that, uh, that Zelensky is a neo nazi that this is a campaign of denazification. it's It's all lies. Uh, and and this is a, I mean honestly Sergey Lavrov is is just a a uh, a crony of Vladimir Putin who should be sanctioned who should never be dealt with again uh, we we need to you know circumvent him and go to the go directly to the Russian people and say uh, this is what was my great disappointment in the State of the Union address is that. President Biden had no message for the Russian people. He should have said to the Russian people, we know that Vladimir Putin doesn't represent you. We know that you don't want your children going to, to Ukraine to commit atrocities on Putin's orders and, 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 and die in an unjust cause. Speak up. Tell the tell the stand. Take to the streets. Tell the Russian president that he tell the world that he doesn't represent you. Then tell their government to stop this killing people in your in your name. He didn't do it. Um and and uh, it's a shame because the Russia. I don't think most Russians support what's happening right now
1: in Ukraine right now. Kyrgyzstan is the first city of three hundred thousand that did fall. Uh, Kyrgyzstan is a a port city. It's a key strategic point by the Black Sea. It will allow them to try. If they get Odessa, they'll really have the entire coastal region of Ukraine, at least for now, and they might be able to hold it. Evidently, warships are heading to Odessa. We understand that Kharkiv is fo- thoroughly surrounded, being shelled now for the third straight day. We're in day eight. And now they're close to taking Maripol, which will secure a land bridge connecting Rostov on Don, uh, on Don to Crimea, which they say is key to uh, just suffocating the capital city, Kiev.
11: Yep. You know what? I'll tell you, if you told me a week ago uh, and, and asked me, do the Ukrainians have a chance? Or are they just holding off the inevitable? I would have told you probably uh, they don't have a chance. Uh, that they, if you just look on paper uh, at the uh, at the forced di- disequilibrium between the two countries um, and, and the capabilities, the disequilibrium of capabilities, it, it, they just didn't have a chance. But look at this. We're here on day eight and they're still holding out. And the Russians have not been able to bring the kind of force onto the Ukrainians that the, the, that would take the capital. They haven't been able to deny them disguise. I mean, the Ukrainian planes are still flying, drones are still flying. Uh, this, you know, it, I, I don't know exactly why. I think part of it is, you know, you saw that that uh, that uh, text messages with, between the Russian soldier and his mother before he was killed, where he said, mama, they told me we we're going on a training exercise. They told us that when we came in, we'd be greeted like liberators, that people are throwing themselves under tanks to stop us. What is going on? You've got Ukrainian soldiers and, and civilian fighters, insurgents who have taken up arms, who are fighting, willing to, assist, to fight and die to save their country fighting against an army of conscripts who were told they were coming on a training exercise and don't know why they're there.
1: Well, I got Um, more information. Internet radio, uh, excuse me, intercepted uh, radio signals that was published today in the Daily Mirror uh, from Russians. Number one, defying orders, refusing to shell towns. Number two, screaming for food and fuel. And then they have, and I I think this is a a war crime, but you should not have uh, the hostages or captured soldiers on camera, but mm-hmm. these ones on camera said exactly what you were saying. We had no idea where we were going. Uh, we were uh, we were, did not want any part of this operation. We had to go do this operation. Now the question yeah. is: Is that how the majority of the uh, fighting force feels, or are those just the ones that were expendable?
11: I think that's got to be the majority of the fighters, and uh, or they would be having a lot more tenacious fighting and a lot more success. And on top, it's and and again, the disparity between the Ukrainian spirit and the Russian spirit is is evident. And so, you know, let's say they you know, let's say they ultimately are able to choke Kiev, um, and 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 take it over. The Ukrainians are good are not going to just put up their arms and stop fighting. There's going to be an insurgency. Uh, in that country. They've been, they've been planning for the insurgency uh, fr- from the beginning of this uh, of this struggle. They've been handing out weapons. You know, if, if you look at uh, insurg- the, how insurgencies work, you need to have a successful insurgency, about one, in f- one out of 50 members of the population willing to take up arms and fight. Ukraine is a country of 44 million people. You think they don't have one in 50 who are willing to take up the fight? Vladimir Putin, the worst thing that could happen to him would be to take Kiev. Because then he's going to face an insurgency that is going to make the 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 insurgency the Soviet Union faced in Afghanistan look like 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 a walk in the in the clouds. The 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 Ukrainians are going to be sending Russian forces home in body bags. Then and it's going to destabilize his regime. It, it's he's he's going to be bogged down in a quagmire. You know we always heard about don't get in the quagmire. That's what the, the what we've been, been told is the lesson of the last 20 years of war. Well guess what? We're, Vladimir Putin just walked into a quagmire. And so the. The best thing he could do right now would be to turn around and head home, because uh, because he's he the and the worst thing that could happen to him would be to succeed in taking Kiev.
1: So I, I believe that we have to do massive action now because every day uh, things get worse in Kharkiv and Kiev, and now we lost uh, Kyrgyzstan, And if who knows if Odessa's taken, they really have very little leverage when it comes to talks. And you know, I think planning for an insurgency means you lost your country. And I was hoping that they wouldn't have to come to that. I want you to hear what Marco Rubio said, if you have sanctions, do them all now. Stop the incremental thing, including buying American, uh, buying Russian oil and being their number one customer. Here's what he said about this. Cut 28.
10: He's either going to have a very costly military victory, followed by a a painful, costly occupation, or he's going to get bogged down in a quagmire. And meanwhile, his economy in in Russia is headed towards third world status. I mean, a week from today, people will be shocked at what shambles uh, that economy is in. And, And I think, you know, and the last problem he has right now is today, especially, we've seen an enormous increase. and the the awareness of Russians that they're involved in a full-scale war and that thousands of Russians are dying. Yeah, he went on. Cut 29. They're about 5%, a little bit under 5% of the oil we buy in this country. We could easily replace that with our own domestic capability. In fact, Canada buys virtually no oil from Russia at all. We're producing 1.2 million barrels a day less than we did under Donald Trump in 2018, 2019. We could get back to that if they walked away from this crazy Green News scam, or Green New Deal as they call it, uh, that's waged war on fossil fuels and allowed us to explore more. There are there are fields ready to go in places like Alaska and Texas that this administration is cra- down on. Uh, we could easily replace the Russian supply with our domestic supply if this administration did it, but of course, it'd have to go to war with the squad and all the radicals over there.
1: But the thing is, we were told he wasn't going to touch the SWIFT system. The Europeans beat us to it. Then he reacted. He also said nothing's off the table when it comes to not buying Russian oil. Mark, fast forward. What do you think he's going to do?
11: Well, first of all, so we, we import about 538,000 barrels a day of Russian oil. Every barrel has a Ukrainian blood on it, and I just I know that the, that the, the, we're in a tough situation because of the inflation he leashed and the high gas prices because of his war on fossil fuels. I don't think Americans want to be giving uh, giving dollars to, to, to Vladimir Putin to buy guns and bombs with every time they gas up their tanks. They just uh, we just don't want to do that. So I think if he went to the American people and said we've got to do this. And it's going to require some sacrifice. I think Americans will be willing to do that. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. He's got to he's got to unleash domestic production and stop this war in fossil This the very simple thing he could have said in the in the uh, in the State of the Union is look, I understand we need to save the planet, but first we have to save Ukraine then we can save the planet. Let's, let's, let's we for now we need to, we need to turn on the spigots. We need to replace all the russian oil. And you know, he's getting beaten to it. BP just pulled out of Russia. There's a, there was a report that uh, that uh, there, a russian gas company has been trying for days to sell uh Urals oil and no one will buy it. Uh, he's going to it's going to end up happening and he's going to get dragged into it. and He's leading from behind. He's got to lead from the front.
1: And he hasn't done that uh, really with the sanctions. And it was Germany that decided to change, not because of our belligerence, because they realized there were 500,000 people in the street protesting. I think most people are outraged. And Mark, I got to ask you, we don't need another war. I get it. But how how are we going to deal with getting up every day for the next few weeks and seeing one city after another just just burned to the ground, bombed to oblivion? Are we going to be okay with that? We have to ask ourselves, two weeks from now, if we're doing that, we're going to say, what exactly did we do? We predicted it. We told everyone it's going to happen. While it happened, we watched it, and we watched the Ukrainians fight and then watch them all killed?
11: You know, we, we need to remember that this is, we, this is not our first rodeo here in the United States. During the Cold War, we supported freedom fighters around the world who were pushing back on Soviet expansionism and were willing to fight their own wars of independence. Um, all they wanted from us was support. They needed weapons. They needed intelligence. They needed funding. Uh, they needed diplomatic support. Uh, they needed pressure on the on the on the Soviet regime, and we provided all that. And that's how we won the Cold War across the world. We didn't go to war with the Soviet Union in Nicaragua. We didn't go to the Soviet war with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. We didn't go to the war with the Soviet Union in Angola and all these other other hot spots. We supported people who were on our side and willing to push back and fight their own wars of liberation. We can do that with the Ukrainian freedom fighters. There's a there's a model for this. We need to provide them with weapons. We need to provide them with intelligence. You know there was a, there was an article in the other day in the paper that the Biden administration NSC was actually debating whether or Not to provide real-time intelligence on Russian positions to the Ukrainians because, under international law, that could make us co-belligerents if we provided that. Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, it's we we have to provide. We should be telling them everything we know about Russian positioning. Uh, You know, the the fact that Elon Musk had to send uh, you know communications equipment to the Ukrainians rather than the CIA or the NSA. Why why are why are private sector people doing this stuff and of the United States? We should we should have before this started. Provided them with, well, you know, we, the, the Europeans now. We were supposed to. They were supposed to send them decommissioned Mig fighters, right? And and then all of a sudden, they pulled back on it because that would make them. They're afraid of becoming co-belligerent. Why didn't we provide those weapons to those planes to them before the war started? Those those planes should have been on Ukrainian airfields before the battle began.
1: Absolutely, so, and, 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 the pilots and, were on their way to pick them up.
11: Nothing should be. Nothing should be off the table in terms of. The only thing that should be off the table is American troops in in Ukraine. But beyond that, we, it's not our job to enforce a no-fly zone. We should be allowed, giving the Ukrainians the planes to, prefer to do their own no-fly zone. We should be giving them drones. We should be giving them all the capabilities to enforce their own no-fly zone. We should be providing them with all the weapons they need. We should be providing them with real-time intelligence on, on what what Putin is doing, and and we need to defeat these guys because – it, it's not just it's not just about ukraine if, if if vladimir putin is not going to stop if he if he succeeds in ukraine he's going to he's going to continue his goal is to reconstitute the soviet union china is watching this and they're going to they're making they're going to make decisions on what they do in taiwan based on how this all plays out north korea same thing with south korea uh, and and the other thing is we this this ukraine was the Third largest nuclear power in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they gave up their nuclear weapons on an American security guarantee that we would come to their aid if they were if they uh, if they were ever attacked and, and invaded. And if we don't come through with that, then every country in the world is going to say, you know what, I'm giving up my nuclear weapons. I'm going to get them faster, and we're going to have a, we're going to have a global arms race as a result. This is this has global implications that are beyond. Just the the, 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 the scenes of uh, moral questions that we're facing uh, with what we're seeing in Ukraine.
1: I hear you. Mark Thiessen, thanks so much. Hopefully you'll be able to join me this weekend on One Nation.
11: Um, I can't wait. I'm going to be on.
1: All right. It's going to be Live great. at
2: 8 and
11: 11.
1: I'll give you my best makeup person.
11: Excellent. That's good. I need it.
1: <laughs> Mark Thiessen. <laughs> yeah, we have a special edition of Live One Nation at 8 and then a li- a brand new show at 11. Mark Thiessen, thank you. Take care one 866 408 I see you up there on the board. I know you have a lot to say. There's no easy answer, but it's one, let's work it out right here. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
0: Coming to you on a need-to-know basis because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show.
11: If anyone was under any delusion that China and Russia aren't working hand in glove against the United States, uh, this episode regarding uh, the fact that China shared our intelligence with Russia on the, uh, our intelligence about his invasion plans with Putin really underscores the point and shows the naive approach that we're taking. Uh, with what is our greatest national security threat. It's really inexplicable, and it does not portend well for the next three years.
1: Uh, that is John Radcliffe talking about the the ridiculous decision to ask China to tell Russia not to attack Ukraine, and they relate everything that we uh, gave China right to Russia. It was such a stupid move, but not surprising. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Two things are happening. Uh, President Zelensky spoke a short time ago in a slight delay, just to update on everyone who's going. He obviously looks tired. He looks worn, but he says everybody's strong. You see what's happening. You see who's right and you see who's wrong. Well, I'll bring you some of those highlights as we listen through a translator. At the same time, we understand Vladimir Putin and uh, uh, France, uh, President Macron of France have spoken in a call today. It was 90 minutes. I'll give you some of the highlights. Putin told Macron that he was fighting against a neo-Nazi regime, denied he was hitting uh, civilians in Ukraine, denied bombing uh, Kyiv, uh, that according to a French official. Macron told uh, Putin Ukraine was not a Nazi regime, that Putin was del- deluding himself and not describing reality. There was nothing reassuring about what Putin told Macron. Putin showed his determination to carry on with operations, that according to a French official. Steve, listen on WABC. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Get closer to the phone. What's on your mind? I,
8: I'm actually running up to it, and I want to take you off speaker. Okay. I, I'm at work. <laughs> hey, Brian, how you doing? Um, this is just going to be quick. Uh, I work for an agency that specializes in energy, and how we purchase products like that are you sign a contract and you pay for it first before they put it on the boat. So the boats that are hit in the United States are already our property. Gotcha. Now we can we could stop signing contracts, but the stuff that's hitting our coasts, the stuff that's hitting our borders, we've already bought and paid for to get it on the boat, to get it over here.
1: Steve, I hear you. So that, uh, to me, if you pledge not to do it and you look at futures and you tell the American people where we're getting it from, for example, to drill more or do something uh, that would be de- Democrat-friendly, buy more from Canada or Mexico— if you do stuff like that, then they'll, in the futures will react and, they'll, and the American security will be enhanced and Russia will pay the price. I also think, Steve, these insurers of these ships are backing out of Russian ships. So if something happens in the open seas, not many people can, can uh, sail, uh, sail the open seas without insurance. And they're beginning to see the evil of this regime. And stop insuring these ships. By the way, it was, we brought up Mark Thiessen, among my many guests, that we're going to have, including Bob Gates, um, former Secretary of Defense, will be joining me Saturday night at 8, Saturday night at 11. One Nation.
0: Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian, Kilmeade. Thanks so much for
1: being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Uh, in a matter of moments, we're going to speak to the best in the business, General Jack Keene, about what's happening on the ground in, in Ukraine as the President Zelensky, in a tape piece, uh, is talking uh, to the press. It seems to be a press conference where he's telling, talking everything on his mind, how many thousands that he believes the Russians have lost and the pounding that they're taking for no reason. We also know this in a readout between Putin and, Ma- and Macron, Uh, The president of France, Uh, it looks as though there is no regrets, no regrets at all uh, from Vladimir Putin. He says they're taking out a Nazi regime. It's farcical. Zelensky is Jewish. No Nazism. I don't know if he believes that, but Lavrov said the same thing, the foreign minister, this morning. Uh, At the bottom of the air, we're going to speak to uh, Madison Allworth. He's a uh, Fox Business correspondent. As we would talk about the impact of what's happening with targeting these oligarchs and what kind of impact that will make and where their riches can be found. So let's get to the big three.
0: Now with the
2: stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I fully accept the fact that the American people uh, are more show me, not tell me. And what they wanna see is they wanna see that we really have reached a new way of managing COVID. They wanna see that these the re- economic recovery is real and sustained. I think the political credit will follow from that.
1: That is Ron Klein who says uh, people don't know how good they have it, and the American people will eventually come around. Doubt it. Number two.
4: My message to the people of Russia, if they're even able to hear it, the economic costs that we've been forced to impose on Russia are not aimed at you. They're aimed at compelling your government
2: to stop its actions.
1: Thanks for that. To stop its aggression. Uh, pressuring Russia. Massive sanctions hitting individuals in the Russian nation while protests continue inside that country, and their currency is getting crushed. The fact is we could be doing more and we must. Time is not on Ukraine's side. Number one.
5: I'd like to point out the statement of your president, uh, Biden, when replying to a question whether there was an alternative to these uh, sanctions from hell. He said that the only alternative is World War Three. And everyone understands that it can only be nuclear war.
1: Uh, That is Lavrov this morning through a translator. As pressure and uh, the shelling rages in many major cities, the first and second, and Odessa, the third biggest city, is being uh, possibly going to be hit today from the sea. Ukrainian forces have taken their first city, and that's Kyrgyzstan. And I want to discuss all that with General Jack Keen. General, uh, welcome back.
9: Always good to be here, Brian. Thank you.
1: So I'm watching Zelensky speak now. Uh, We know that Putin spoke to Macron earlier. Uh, So uh, things are moving. Kursan Falls, has that surprised you? No,
9: I mean, uh, the progress in the south is largely due to the uh, the quality of those forces. That's the Southern Military District. They they are the forces that have worked together, exercised together. Their bases aren't that far uh, far away, and 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 they certainly have made the made the most progress. they 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 have been circled, Maripol right there on the coast. Um, and certainly after Kershaw, they'll move by land and also by sea uh, to Odessa, and they will be able to then claim that the entire coastline of, of Ukraine will be in their hands. And obviously, uh, all the exports and imports will, that go by sea largely will be under their control economically as well. So, uh, and, and Kiev will, will be encircled also Um, an encirclement from the west side of the Nippa River and also from the east side. And we've seen what the tactics are. They'll encircle, they'll pummel the town inside, uh, try to seek a surrender from people inside uh, to avoid further damage. If not, then they'll move their their combat operational forces uh, into the city. They'll do the same thing at, at Kharkiv. And I think... You know, Brian, our focus in the United States, I mean, it's almost uh, like the president was taking a victory lap in the uh, State of the Union speech because, you know, the unity that NATO has, and that's a good thing, and the sanctions that we're imposing, and that's a good thing, although we all know they could be tougher. But our policy should be that we're not going to let this stand. That should be our policy. And we should be very aggressive, on the one hand, with making certain that the Ukrainians have as much of the tools that we can possibly get them or help get them from somebody else to stand this off and impose cost on these Russian forces. And and I'm not convinced we're doing anywhere near a, a full-throated assistance to them. There's a lot of other items that we could be giving them, like, like drones, um, mortars, uh, more Stinger missiles, even integrated air defense uh, missiles uh, systems, which is what they've asked for, uh, and get other countries really involved in this and lean into it. And then the second thing is we've got to do be laying the groundwork now with uh, Ukrainian leaders uh, to build an insurgency network and, and how, how how we're going to do that. Uh, and we, sh- we shouldn't wait until the last city falls. We know full well that the Ukrainians are not going to stand for Russian troops on their soil, and they will fight until the last Russian soldier leaves. That should be our position. We're going to assist the Ukrainians to force the Russians— off their land, and we'll provide that assistance for as long as it takes.
1: I thought one we thing, have, right? When when the MIGs ahead. were delivered to Poland, uh, it looked like that was going to be there to reinforce their air force. Pilots were on the way, and now the MIGs are not going to be there. They said it's more complicated than that. What's so complicated about it?
9: I think I think they NATO just you know got scared. They they thought the Russians uh, well, They may have even heard something from the Russians. Uh, they're going to hold them accountable. Uh, as far as they're concerned, you know, those are, Pol- those are Polish airplanes attacking Russia. That probably said something like that to them. And, and, and the comeback should have been no. They're no longer our airplanes. We have given them to the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians are flying them. We claim no ownership whatsoever. As far as we're concerned, it's no different than giving them a, an artillery tube, you know, which we have done, or a missile defense system, which we have done. And that was a mistake. I mean, I understand that the head of NATO flew into Poland to stop it. Uh, and I, I think they they just got spooked by their own fear.
1: Well, I mean, that's like, all you can do is like every day that they hang out and they say they their heart goes out. It's getting worse for the people fighting the hardest. Germany says they're going to send in two thousand seven hundred shoulder launch uh, service to air rockets uh, they say they're on their way. We pledged. We asked uh, Congress for another ten billion. We said three hundred fifty million was on its way over the weekend. Do you know if anything's actually getting there?
9: Yes, I mean I do know uh, from having spoke to people in the Pentagon that yeah, they are they are getting there, and uh, the Ukrainians go down to the border at Poland and pick pick the stuff up in their trucks and move it in. I I think there's other things we can do also. I mean. It has to do with your determination and resolve to help. And there's risk associated with everything. But an example is, uh, you know, obviously they're having to drive, but there's plenty of airfields that the Russians are not coming down on. And we have airfields all over, you know, I I think you probably live in in New Jersey. There's all sorts of airfields in New Jersey and the state of Virginia where I live that don't even have lights at night. You know, they're just daytime airports. They're very small. But we can land on those things, and we, we come in with no lights, um, and we could be providing that kind of, of resupply. Now, we that would be a, <clears throat> a covert operation, and we'd have to designate it as such. But we also have the capability to co- do covert work and, and fly. We could have flown UAVs in to attack that uh, that convoy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, just sitting there.
9: And we'd have to do that covertly. This is the Central Intelligence Agency being tasked by the president of the United States. This is something we have done routinely, to be frank about it. Uh, We know how to do it. We're good at it. I mean, so we're not there. I mean, we have to put infrastructure in to make this work. But this is what I'm talking about. If you're really focused and you you mean what you say, that we're not going to let this stand and we're going to do everything we can to help the Ukrainians resist this invasion, then we should be all in. And we should be able to accept some risk. I mean, covert operations all have a degree of deniability associated with it. Um, But get these supplies in their hands by multiple means as quickly as we possibly can. And make certain we're really talking to them and know what they, they need the most and load that up in terms of priority they should be driving the priority not
1: us so well, what is your take on on this conversation where vladimir putin and lavrov are saying they're nazis in the ukraine i mean we all know that's totally farcical you might as well be saying there are martians so why why would they be who are they talking to with the, i mean people of russia are educated people they know that's not true
9: well, that's how desperate they are in terms of trying to have some kind of validation and justification for this. I mean, they can't even come up with something that's presentable, uh, that, that, that has some tone of believability to it. Uh, that, that's how desperate they are, <laughs> because it's such a bold-faced lie. There's no way to call this ugly pig called an invasion. I mean, it is what it is. It is an invasion. There's no justification for a a sovereign, independent state like Ukraine. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's so desperate. It's laughable. You're right.
1: Zelensky is speaking Uh, right now and he said, if you're not going to give me planes, give me tanks, give me something. I need more. And he's got the pilots. He's got the people. They got the will. They know how to fight. They got the toughness. There's got to be somebody out there who understands the urgency of what's happening right now, but willing to act behind it. I want to just bring you to the play-by-play on this. Kyrsten, a key strategic point in the Black Sea, has fallen. I mentioned that, 300,000 people there. Now they say that they, uh, Lucas Tomlinson reporting that several Russian warships are heading to uh, from Crimea to Odessa. From what you know, General Keene, do you believe that the Ukrainians can go fight to keep Odessa? Do they have anything there?
9: <clears throat> well, they want an anti-ship uh, missile from us, and we didn't give them to them. Uh, And we have them. Uh, We should have given them to them uh, because those ships would be sitting ducks, uh, you know, for those missiles. Um, Unfortunate. Uh, We didn't give them until just recently Stinger missiles. So all of these months, they wanted Stinger missiles from us. The first Stinger missiles I believe they got was from one of the Baltic states. They were our Stingers that we had given to the Baltics. I mean, that's the kind of nonsense that we've been doing. Look at In in March, when they built up on the border last year in 21, this is a year ago, 70,000 troops on the border, they started screaming for these items. There was a U.S. shipment. It was from the Trump administration, because we're 90 days into the Biden administration in 21. That shipment was scheduled to go that month to Ukraine. And in the face of 70,000 on the border, because we didn't want to provoke them into coming across the border. We delayed that shipment until August, and we did the same thing in the fall when they had 125000 and building on the border. We delayed a shipment again. So what, where's the seriousness uh, on the part of the Biden administration to, let, to help the Ukrainians fight themselves? I mean, we made a decision that we would not commit U.S. troops to fight side by side with them, but we supposedly made a policy decision to help the Ukrainians fight for themselves. But my my concern is we've never been truly all in on this. And right today, when we're in a desperate situation, we're still not all in.
1: Uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, and I just wonder how, when we're going to get up and find out that that government's either under arrest or been wiped out because they know exactly where they are.
9: Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it's inevitable what, what is coming. And then. The Ukrainians will fight to take their country back and drive the Russians out. They, will, they were going to impose costs. It may take years for them to do it, but they will never give up on it. And we should do everything we can clandestinely and covertly to help them do, do just that. And we should get other countries involved in it as well.
1: And really uh, have them pay the price, because I think there are some sanctions that I, th- I think the, the Russian government is really uh, going to feel. General Jack Keen, thanks so much.
9: Yeah. Great
1: talking to you, Brian. Right. Uh, hopefully we'll have better news soon uh, where we're taking real action. They get real weapons. Uh, we come back. Your turn. One, eight, six, six, four, oh, eight, seven, six, six, nine. Or you can write me at Brian This is the Brian Kilmeade show. Bottom of the hour, we talk about these oligarchs. Uh, do they are they're the ones that could overthrow Putin? They're the ones now losing their yachts, their planes, their mansions. Is that going to be enough for them to take action? We'll discuss it with an expert. But next you, Brian Kilmeade Show.
0: Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
1: President Zelensky's press conference is still going on. He's talking in grandiose ways. He looks exhausted. I don't blame him. Uh, earlier, about six hours ago, uh, Foreign Secretary Lavrov, a very experienced guy, actually wanted us to buy this explanation for the invasion. Listen to the through the translator. I don't have
7: enough time now to
8: enumerate
3: all the facts.
8: Please visit our website, the website of our ministry, and you will be able to get a detailed description of what the Kiev neo Nazi re- regime is now doing. You like the word killer? You know, real killers are siding with the Kiev regime. Operation. Do you believe that President
4: Zelensky, the first Jewish president of Ukraine whose families were killed in the Holocaust, is a Nazi?
3: I think that the Nazis and neo-Nazis manipulate him. Otherwise, it is hard to account for how President
8: Zelensky can preside in a society of a society where
4: neo-Nazis, miss rife. they make marches and torch
2: processions.
1: It's just a joke. Marches and torch processions into a European-oriented nation? Are you nuts? He wants us to believe that? Robert, listening in Mississippi. Robert. Hey, how you doing? Good. What's we'll on your Good. mind? I
6: don't want to come. I don't want to come on here and sound like a Russian supporter, but I'm a big. I'm a big guy with history and, and history, and it often repeats itself in different forms and fashions. But all this sanction stuff is great until you back this guy up into a corner, just like we backed Japan up into a corner. They had no oil; they could get no stuff. We we blocked off everything because we thought that would calm them down. It had the opposite effect. They jumped on us and bombed Pearl Harbor. I mean, this guy is a nut. You push this nut in the corner. All right, so we could continue
1: to act to – how how, has timidity treated us through this whole thing? You heard General Uh, Keane. We had shipments heading over there to arm the Ukrainians before the invasion. We didn't do it. We don't put any drones on the ground. We didn't give them planes to defend themselves. And now uh, everyone should back off because the nut might do something nutty, like worse than this, like claiming Nazism exists well, in Ukraine, and they're walking around with torches. I understand about what Japan was doing, but they were already taking over island nations and uh, and um, and, uh, and invading China before they hit us. They didn't like the fact that we were standing in their way. Appreciate it. Michael, WHIO. Hey, Michael.
11: Hey, Brian. Uh, <clears throat> President Biden is asking the European countries to do their fair share, and uh, when is he going to enable America to do its fair share
6: by producing all the gas and oil that we can uh, produce to uh, help the situation out.
1: He's not going to do it because he claims it's going to ruin the earth. Uh, that, that's what he says. It's going to ruin the earth. And if we keep on relying on fossil fuels and we should use less and you got to walk more and grab a bike, that'll help. Uh, Michael, it's ridiculous. Uh, we're, we're being led by people or ideologues from party first, and we need more than ever somebody who's smart and knows how to put the country first. I mean, Macron is meeting with Putin. I'm fine with that. But there was a time when the US took the lead on something. It was in the Brian Kill Me show. We talk about what is it like and what will it do to grab the assets from all these oligarchs?
0: The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
4: Putin is the the wealthiest man in the world. He doesn't hold any of that wealth in his own name. He holds it in the name of people he trusts. Those people are oligarchs. And so if you sanction the oligarchs, you freeze the assets of the oligarchs, you freeze Putin's assets. And that's the crux of the
1: issue. And that is Bill Browder, who would know, because uh, Putin tried to kill him when he tried to uncover some of the corruption in the government, and it was directly linked right to Putin. That was in the early 2000s. They ended up killing his lawyer. He wrote a book uh, about the whole thing, and that got him basically with a target on his back. Bill Browder uh, will be on with me on One Nation this weekend, but he was talking to Madison Allworth uh, today. Uh, She's a Fox Business correspondent based here in New York City. Madison, welcome. Thanks, Brian. So you know where the oligarchs keep their apartments.
12: Yeah, yeah. We're looking at, in New York City alone, about a billion dollars worth of real estate assets that belong to various oligarchs, most of them around Central Park because that's the hottest real estate in New York City.
1: Right, and what they're going to do is sanction the oligarchs to put pressure on Putin because most of them have gotten, many believe, ill-gotten gains. They've gotten it by uh, through corruption, uh, through bilking the, the Russian people, so to speak. When you talk to Browder, you talk to him on Zoom, right? Yes. What was it like?
12: I mean, it was it was great to talk with him. He's been covering this for years now. And what we first spoke about is that the EU, EU, excuse me, currently has sanctions against eight oligarchs. So they've been able to target individual oligarchs here in the U.S. We have not yet done that. We have sanctions against the financial institutions, the infrastructure of Russia, but not yet individual oligarchs. Yesterday, the announcement of the kleptocapture task force that is going to help go after people i.e. oligarchs, who have helped to fund Putin and the war in Ukraine. But I am seeing reports that the U.S. tomorrow, or today, excuse me, might move forward with sanctioning individual oligarchs and their families, which will result in travel bans and the— for freezing and then potentially capturing of their assets has not happened yet, but there are reports that that's coming.
1: I believe champion uh, Chelsea just won the Champions League uh, in Britain. And the owner is Abramovich, who's a Russian oligarch within 24 hours. He says, I'm going to sell the team and I'm going to take the profits and I'm going to give it to Ukrainian charities. Why did he move so quick?
12: Yes. So this is really interesting, and Bill Browder had a great take on this. Um, let's actually just listen to him explain why he thinks Roman is doing this and what it could mean for the ongoing conflict.
4: I think it's a, it's from his perspective, it's it's a very clever move. So he, he he's. He's the most well-known oligarch in the UK. There are people, many people who believe that he's close to Putin. And um, and he, I guess he believes that he's next to be sanctioned. So if he gets sanctioned, he loses the football team. And so it's a pretty clever move to say, don't sanction me. I'm going to give the football team to charity. The, the charity will sell it. And then um, and all the money will go to... Victims, and and by the way, the football team is let's say maybe five percent of his net worth, and so if he can save ninety five percent of his net worth by giving his football team away, which he'd lose anyways, and he might even be able by, by creating this goodwill of giving the money to the um, victims in Ukraine, he might be able to save save the rest of his money from being sanctioned. It's kind of a genius move from from his perspective.
12: I mean, Bill says it perfectly. We we're we're seeing this. It really does on the surface look like a good move, and the money is going to Ukraine victims, but. You know, he wouldn't be doing something like this unless he potentially feared being sanctioned himself could be a move for him to avoid being sanctioned.
1: And the reason why we bring up the oligarchs and the pressure there from the Europeans as well as us is that they believe the oligarchs allow Putin to stay in power, that he cut a deal, according to Browder, that 50 percent of all your profits come to me. You keep 50 percent and you can still be an oligarch and live wherever you want. And if the oligarchs feel he's too much trouble now because he's a pariah, made them pariahs around the world, 141 countries voted to condemn and sanction them. So now this could be the breaking point for Vladimir Putin.
12: I mean, it could that's be, the right? Hope. That's the hope. And that's, that's definitely what Bill is arguing. And that's what the EU is arguing with the sanctioning of at least eight oligarchs, maybe something the U.S. could be doing, too. Like you said, you know... The, The structure of Russia and Russia government and power is very different than here in the U.S. The idea that the president—we hope (laughs) (laughs) so—the idea the president would work so closely with oligarchs and kind of stash his money even with them is something so foreign to us. But this is the way that Russia and oligarchs have been working for a while now, so it's kind of a foreign concept that if you target. This close circle, you hit Putin, but that, that's exactly what Bill argues. That's exactly what the EU is doing, and that could be what the U.S. does if they do sanction these oligarchs.
1: Right, and the thing is you want his inner circle to break when they can't – the ruble right now, I think, is worth one-half of 1%, or one percent or one cent. And I understand, too, the people of Russia said you can't take out more than $10,000, and every day it's worth less and less – the only hope the uh, the Ukrainian people have since we won't go in there directly and they're beginning to cut off their supply lines is for there to be a change of leadership and sentiment in Russia. So this might be – it's sad, but this might be our only hope. This whole move against oligarchs, is it a quick one? Can you quickly grab that chip?
12: Yeah, so we have seen – so yes and no. So we're currently seeing in the EU some quick movement. They've – like I said – They have sanctioned individual oligarchs. What that means is they can go after their assets. So we've actually seen in France a yacht linked to Rosneft Boss. Rosneft is one of the uh, Russian oil companies owned by the state. The head of that, Igor Sechin, who is on the EU sanction list, his yacht was seized in France. Uh, That's, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We've also had reports that a German yacht was also, or Germany has also seized a yacht belonging to Alisher Uzmanov. He's also on that EU sanction list. So these sanctions come out in the EU. Two mega yachts are sanctioned and seized. Right now in the US, just that klepto capture task force. But if we move forward with sanctions against individuals, like I said, that $1 billion worth of real estate in New York, we could start seeing that being padlocked. And then another important part of sanctions is this travel restriction. People don't like their freedoms being taken away, obviously. When you're sanctioned, you not only lose your assets, you lose your ability to be a free citizen of the world or of the U.S. You can't travel here. You can't travel around Europe. You're isolating all of these people, furthering the pressure on those oligarchs.
1: What you wonder, if that's why they're speaking today, they're evidently in round two of talks. So talk about raking uh, the shaking the foundation. They shut down two more TV stations. I understand. Did you see the video of them arresting children as young as seven years old who put down flowers at the Ukrainian embassy and put a sign up there and said "No more war"? Yeah, I, I mean, mean that's the evilness of this regime.
12: Yeah, it's incredible to see. Obviously, the images coming out of the out of Ukraine are so disturbing. But yes, in Russia too, you see the way that people there are being treated. I. I'm amazed by the resilience of the Russian protesters, as even the kids who are trying to show their support of Ukraine. Um, but, yeah, we're getting images in a world where we now have social media. There's so much that the Russian regime will try to do in terms of propaganda. But we we do see these images coming out of people being strong and saying, you know, we don't agree with what Putin's doing and we support Ukraine.
1: Here's Doctor Andrew Courtnoy and here's the. De- here's why I'm playing this. He's Russian's foreign policy advisor. He advised against this. He has broken from the regi- uh, from the regime. Spoke to Sky News this morning. Here's a little of what he said. Cut ten.
3: I'm trying to keep going. I'm trying to uh, continue doing what I'm doing, but of course I'm depressed. You know, all of us are depressed, and uh, I think that. Uh, it's, it's very embarrassing for all of us, not only because we turned out to be wrong, but uh, also because, of course, you know, uh, Russia and uh, all Russians will be in a difficult position uh, in, uh, in many countries, not even only Western countries, but all yeah. over the place for a long time.
1: Right. And what they have is grain and what they have is oil and gas. If we decided not to buy their oil and gas, what would that impact be? Oh, I mean,
12: it would be huge. And I I think there is some reporting coming out today. It's looking like private U.S. oil companies are not going to be buying any more oil. We're getting our last shipments potentially of oil from Russia. It would have an impact on the U.S. economy because we're already looking at $100 a barrel. There are estimates that it could go up to $120, $140 a barrel because I do think we are going to stop buying Russian gas. But even, you know, regardless of whether we do that – I've been also covering the companies in the U.S. that have on their own kind of sanctioned Russia in their own way by pulling out of business there. Exxon ending a project with the Russian state owned oil, uh, oil and gas company there Um, pulling out of that BP doing the same shell doing the same. So as we pull out of these gas ventures in Russia, that has a further impact. And then you, you spoke about the Russian people when companies like apple stop selling their products in russia or netflix stops carrying the russian propaganda channels or um, disney disney all these ford planes, GM, right, not ford stopping production there stopping sales disney not releasing new movies all of this stuff sends a message but but has a social impact too and i think we're hitting russia from all ends we're hitting them fiscally and socially and and the hope with things like netflix stopping the airing of russian propaganda channels there it's also that impact of trying to cut through the noise of the misinformation to say, here's what's actually happening, and here's what happens when Putin invades Ukraine.
1: Madison Allworth here. Madison, lastly, uh, not only are these companies pulling out, but America's going to be asked to sacrifice a little. We know the price of oil is now up over $100. That's how we started today. This is what Ari Fleischer said, and I know you don't do people polls for a living, <laughs> but I get the sense the American people are horrified by what they see and motivated to help. See if you believe that he's right here. Cut 33.
10: The self-interest of politicians is to get reelected, and they don't want to anger their constituents. But I think what they're misreading is the amount of sacrifice constituents are willing to make because of Ukraine and their heroism. President Zelensky has led the world in morality and in righteousness and in teaching a lesson and in sacrifice. I think the people of Europe and the people of the United States would will be willing to pay more.
1: What do you think? I mean, we're... Uh... Paycheck to pay six out of every 10 families paycheck to paycheck. We're already paying 40 percent more than a year ago for gas, let alone uh, oil.
12: I don't you know, it's a great question, but I don't even know, honestly, if the answer matters, because people don't have a choice. If the price goes up, they got to pay it. The sad thing is maybe in a world where we weren't dealing with record 40 year record high inflation that we would in our civic duty be willing to pay higher prices But that's not the reality. Like you said, so many families are living paycheck to paycheck. Costs have gone up exponentially. Um, I I think that Americans are interested in no longer buying Russian oil. And I think as a result, that would be higher prices. But I think if you ask them, they'd rather us have more independence on oil here and having that be something that that kind of help the wallet. Because we're dealing with all of this going on. We're also Mm. dealing with, uh, you know, I don't want to compare it, but. We're in tough times in America ourselves. Families are having to make difficult choices when it comes to budgeting because of record high inflation. 7.5% with the latest report. And energy being one of the highest things. And now with this crisis, it could be worse. But to say that it's only Ukraine is wrong. We've been dealing with high gas prices for months now. The issue is this is going to spike it even higher. I saw some reports today that we could be looking at 40 extra cents in the next couple months. We've been dealing with pennies increase per day. 40 cents in, like, two months, that would be a huge jump that everyone would feel.
1: Last day, and I don't know if you have the answer to this, but I've heard speculation that China is surprising people by not thoroughly backstopping Russia. They haven't made the huge purchases of oil like they did when the pandemic first hit. Oil dropped, and they said, let us hoard it because no one was doing anything because they were told to stay at home. Do you sense that China has not done what maybe Russia expected, and that's buy that oil, send it around to them?
12: Yeah, I mean— I do think there's been a lot of things that have surprised Russia and Putin. I think there were – he had hopes with this invasion that have not materialized, including what you just mentioned. I think China is also looking at Ukraine and looking at the world's response to it and is reacting accordingly.
1: India said, yeah, I'll buy it, but you have to bring it to me. And I understand a lot of these, uh, these insurers are not insuring the Russian deliveries. So you're not going to take the risk of something happening if you can't insure that oil. So India says, we're not sending a tanker to you. You're going to have to bring it to us. So I'm not sure that that's that much of a help right now. The pressure is really going to come up over the next few weeks. The bigger question is, does does Ukraine have a few weeks?
12: Right. And I think you know what Bill says and what we see with our coverage constantly on both Fox News and Fox Business is that Ukrainians don't have that much time. So the hope is, I think the big news today from all of this, like I said, we are seeing reports that... The White House could sanction individual oligarchs and their families, restricting their travel and freezing their assets. If we do that, that could have a big impact quickly, which is something that I think the Ukrainians need.
1: Right. Uh, Go for the oligarchs. You know, if you take my mansion, you got my attention. If you take my yacht, you'll, you'll basically get all my attention. Uh, I've always said that. Madison, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. And Bill Browder, again, will be on with One Nation this weekend. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Back to wrap up this hour in just a moment. Don't move.
12: Expanding your
0: knowledge base. It's The Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade
3: life uh, is as it is my life today is wonderful I believe that I am needed I think that's the most important sense of life that you are needed That you're not just an emptiness that breathes and walks and eats something
5: that
3: you know the fact that you live on
5: this fact,
1: a
3: lot of, uh, some things depend.
1: That's important. So that is uh, President Zelensky, who's still speaking now. No, excuse me, I'm wrong. He did speak, it seems to be 45 minutes, and he was talking in grandiose, wide-sweeping ways. Not I. And of course, he was saying the same thing, I need planes, if not planes, give me tanks. But in the big picture, he was getting very philosophical. Number one, there's two reasons why. That he's absolutely exhausted. Number two, he's got... Absolutely no sleep. And number three, he's almost feeling fatalistic. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive this. But he does have a sense. He said, what's kind of crazy is that I can get almost any leader on the phone. There's no bureaucracy. They all call. But I got to get the help. He's not getting the help. And he's trying to also say, this is not only my fight. This is coming to your doorstep. You could say goodbye, Ukraine. But after that, get ready, Baltic regions, Get ready, Poland. And, and you know what? They're going to be all eyes on France. The good news is the Russian army's not that great. The better news is they're running out of money. And the and the, the greatest news is the world really responds. I mean, the fact that Chile or North Korea or China or India doesn't want to get on your side or they want to abstain from the condemnation. I don't think that's a big deal when 141 nations do. And when Lavrov goes to speak at the UN to the Humanitarian Council, 100 plus uh, diplomats come out, believe me. Not everybody would do that uh, if, unless it was so obvious this invasion was thoroughly unnecessary. And to come out and continue to say it's Nazis, when we haven't had Nazis since the 40s, except for some harebrained uh, idiot enclaves in various places around the world, they are not a force and never have been. And this guy spent all day yesterday getting uh, officially having his application to the European Union essentially approved. And getting a standing ovation from the leading democracies in the world. So I ask you, when's the last time France, England, Hungary, uh, or any other European nation ever stood up and cheered for Nazis? It's a joke. But my feeling is they have so much firepower, if not any finesse, they are just going to be annihilating city after city. And my hope is Odessa's ready to fight because they desperately need a port to import weapons as well as supplies. Food, drinks, nourishment, medicine, because they can't hold out forever. After a while, it doesn't matter how tough you are, if they're bombing you, you can't survive a a bomb through toughness, obviously. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget, One Nation coming up Saturday at 8 and 11. We've got everyone from Bob Gates to Bill Browder. We'll be breaking news, writing the latest in the war, and keeping you all up to date. Keep it here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business
0: Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.